you know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at keeleycompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. And as you know, if you've been tuning in for longer than a single episode, many of our episodes that we interview our guests get a little bit emotional. They share personal stories. They share losses. They share things they've had to learn, wisdom they've gained, challenges they've overcome. And today you're going to hear such a story, but you're going to hear a man in the middle of that story. It's not over with yet. It's a man who has experienced profound heartache, and you're going to hear that in his voice. And yet, as you go along for the ride, you're going to hear something that is worthy for you to take on too. So let me tell you a little bit more about today's guest. Chris Didier is turning heartbreak pain into heartfelt purpose of striving to keep others from experiencing that same kind of heartache in their lives. So here we go. In 2020, Chris's son, Zach, was 17 years old. He's an A student. He is a star athlete. He is an awesome guy. He's got friends everywhere. And above all, he's a loving son. He's a great kid. Through the social media app, Snapchat, he was contacted by a drug dealer. Zach believed that what he was going to buy was a legitimate pharmaceutical grade pill. Instead, what Zach ended up unknowingly buying and then ultimately ingesting was a counterfeit pill made with a lethal amount of fentanyl. You're going to hear about fentanyl. You're going to hear how utterly, unbelievably dangerous this drug is. My friends, today, Chris joins us to bring awareness to fentanyl's deadly role in our communities and how he's dedicating himself to advocacy and helping navigate his grief, how he's finding his healing but ultimately how he's bringing about meaningful change, not only in his life and in his community, but ultimately in ours. This is a worthy conversation with a man who is still grieving and yet also striving to utilize that grief to ensure that you don't have to. So here we go. Chris Didier, my friend, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hey, John. Thank you for having me. I'm very thankful. Well, we're thankful. You're part of our community. You're part of our friendship. You and I have some overlapping friends, including Cujo. So normally I begin by asking our guest, if I happen to meet you today, how would you introduce yourself to us? But instead, I'm going to ask you, how do you know the guy that I know as Cujo? Well, I'm blessed to get to know the Teshner family. Like Cujo, I'm an academy grad and went to pilot training and flew fighters for the U.S. Air Force. And we were on assignment in Greece. It was a non-flying billet. It was a NATO job. And I had started my assignment before the Teshner family. And pretty much a common thing in the Air Force is to have a sponsorship program for new families arriving into their new location. And I really enjoyed being a sponsor for arriving families because I've benefited having had sponsors when I was new to a base. And I was fortunate to be assigned the Teshner family as my sponsoree family. And basically just help coordinate um, their travels, their lodging, setting up utilities, where schools could be if they have kids, those types of things. And also to just help Robert Cujo Teshner with how work works. And they had a really long 
travel day. It was multiple flights throughout different international airports, and they had their little young boy, Michael. I believe he was two at the time. And I think after they landed in Athens, there was some holdup at the airport, and it's a several, like a four-hour drive from there to Lattice, where we were meeting in Greece, and they were pretty tired. But Robert Cujo was thankful, and so was Diane for all the setup work we had done. I locked eyes to their son, Michael. I had, you know, children that are little like Michael's age, and I miss them dearly. They said, oh, Michael's exhausted. You have no idea. He is a handful. But they both were apologizing. You know, Michael is not in a good mood. And I said, well, let me hold him. And they're like, no, he's not going to let anyone hold him. And guess what happened? That's right. I held him and he looked at me like, hey, who's this guy? And it kind of surprised mom and dad. They're like, wow, this is a, a kid whisperer. Backing up a little bit from Greece, you, you mentioned the academy as if everybody goes to the academy. Certainly you and Cujo did, but it's not everybody's path. And it's an unusual journey, actually. What, what was it about the Air Force Academy and serving your nation that you wanted to do? I wanted to fly. I caught the bug when I flew with my dad at 10 years old in a little cub from Sacramento to Vacaville. And it freaked me out. I was scared. And he said, okay, you ready to fly? I, I need a break. And he said, get ready to take controls. And, I, and I was, I'm like nine years old. I said, dad, I can't do this. Are you kidding? We'll, we'll explode and die. And he says, no, nope, on the count of three. One, two, three, better grab it. And I have to let go now. And I freaked out and said, no. And I grabbed the controls. And immediately he said, wow, Chris. You're doing great. Can you turn left? Let's get away from that cloud. Turn right, go up, go down. And I I can't describe in words how overpowering joy I got from that. Like, wow, I actually am controlling this monster airplane, which is a small Piper Cub. Then I went to air shows and got involved with programs in high school. And I just had the Air Force Academy on my sides for that. You went to the Air Force Academy, graduated, and I believe you served for 22 years. Is that accurate? Yes, sir. Balkans, Iraq, Afghanistan, all over yep. the United States and over the world. Yes. Was there a, a moment in looking back on an illustrious career that you're most proud of in some way? Oh, gosh, there's so many. I, I honestly think it, most of my joy and my magic moments are ones that are related to my family. Basically, my first assignment after pilot training, believe it or not, was airlift. I flew the Learjet, it's called the C-21, stationed at Ramstein Air Base. And it was pretty new to the Air Force, new to the airplane, new to marriage. My then wife, Laura, and I were, were newlyweds, new to Europe. So it was a new big adventure. And about a little more than a year and a half later, we birthed our firstborn, Allie. And we didn't want to sit idle with the new baby. And we traveled all over Europe. And it, Allie became a great traveler at a very young age of just months old throughout all of Europe. And I, I really treasure those times. As far as professional, I was involved in the first centralized fighter pilot crossflow board. Air Force never had that before because when I entered the Air Force active duty, they didn't have fighter or bomber assignments. And a few years later, they decided well, we needed we needed to bring and build fighter pilot base. And I was selected for one of three F-15E assignments, strike fuel assignments. And I was really, really grateful for that. Being selected for that is truly a high watermark in my life because it's something that was extremely competitive and something that hadn't happened before. So you, you serve in the Air Force for 22 years. I understand that eventually all, all great things must come to an end. You leave the Air Force, but not flying. You flew for United Airlines. Yes, sir. I still do. Oh, well, I look forward to seeing you up at 36,000 feet sometime, Chris. But yeah. you also mentioned in the way I asked the previous question that, hey, I love flying. I love the Air Force. I love my nation. But it's my family. It's, it's really my family that my, my best memories rotate around. Yeah. You have three children. Yes. What, what are the names of your three kids? Alexandra, she likes to be called Allie, and Sam, Samuel, and Zachary. 
and it's the third one, of course, that you and I are going to spend the majority of our conversation on today, Zach. Yeah. Zach is an incredibly special young man. And I'd just like you to make sure you tell our audience a little bit more about what makes and made him such a remarkable young man. Well, I'm grateful for the opportunity to share Zach's story is what we call it. Zach is an amazing soul. He loved life. He loved family. He loved friends. He loved our dogs. He was enormously successful throughout the entire spectrum of what students typically do. Academically, he was a straight-A student. He was enrolled in every AP class he could be enrolled in. Halfway through high school, at the beginning of his junior year, he took the SAT, got a 1550. I, I tried taking that dang test at least a dozen times. I never got, even got close to that. But getting A's and everything and just excelling academically. But more than that, he was very talented on the field. He was very active in sports. I coached his team for six years in soccer. And he was one of our key players. The last three seasons, we had winning seasons. And, and we fostered an environment for the boys to just have fun and know each other, know each other's strengths and weaknesses, help each other out. And once that started to take off, they really gelled. And when we would play other teams, they saw that. And then the next season, they would want to join our team. And our team got really big and did, did so well. Zach loved track and field. He started that junior high school, but then continued into high school. And his events were hurdles and high jump, but hurdling was his favorite part. And the cool thing about it is Zach's story in track really reminds me a lot of Louis Zamperini's story from Laura Hildebrand's book, Unbroken. For those who don't know, Zach started out doing fine, but every track meet, he bested his own time. They call it a personal record or a PR. And there are so many amazing side stories about what he was trying to do. But every track meet, he bested his own time. And after the season was progressing, people were taking notice. Is Zach going to do another PR? And he did. Every track meet. At the end of that season, he was... The only student in his high school, who was a sophomore, who ended up in the San Joaquin CIF sectionals as a sophomore. And there's a really there's a really good story about that meet and an awesome conversation that that we shared. And it was just such a beautiful day. It's it definitely a magic moment. And sure enough, he got a PR that day. And it was awesome. And at the end of the season, it earned him what was called the Coach's Award, which is usually what the seniors, maybe juniors get. And he was a sophomore. Other things about Zach, he was very active in scouting. He was near completing his Eagle project to earn the Eagle rank. He was close to that, and he was very involved in community service. And then the other thing is, which is a major part of Zach, kind of saving to the last, is he's a musician. He learned to play four musical instruments on his own. And he went out of his comfort zone his junior year and auditioned for a, a musical for school. Again, another cool side stories there that are rather comical and uplifting, but he auditioned and earned the lead role of Troy Bolton in the high school musical. So the part Zach Efron played, my son Zach Didier played, and it was an awesome experience for him. And in all counts, he really was excelling everywhere. He was like the leader, the, the glue in every group. And there's countless stories of how well he did. I think of all the attributes he has, though, I think the one I treasure the most is his propensity to help his friends, help his family, help people. He loved helping people. He would do sprint work after practice with friends to help them with their speed work. He would stay after school, go to the library with friends, help them prepare for a test or a paper. He would love to mentor younger scouts. He really enjoyed it. One of the events we did 
or helped people with the Paradise Fires years ago here in California. When we were driving back, he said, Dad, I, I really like helping people. I want to do more of this. And that just shows the love in his heart. It's, it's an amazing, amazing thing. You shared a lot about this amazing boy academically and athletically and musically and his heart for others. You shared it in a way where sometimes you were pretty monotone in the way you delivered, other times very animated, and other times long pauses. And one more thing I'm sure our listeners picked up on, you shared it all in the past tense. He was, he did, he he had. So what we all know is that was who Zach was, but life has happened. Life has changed profoundly for you all and all those who knew and loved Zach. I want you to take us back, if you're willing, to December 27th, 2020. I'd like to back up a little bit to that led up to that day. Keep in mind, there this was a time of COVID lockdown and restrictions. And the end of Zach's junior year, track season was canceled a few days before he was scheduled to take his DMV behind the wheel driving test. That was canceled. Junior prom canceled. Our summer plans were canceled. Homecoming in the fall was canceled. Our soccer games that following fall, that would have been his senior year. That was also canceled and malls were closed. And our children, as you know, during these lockdowns, were put in front of a computer to try to get through their schooling. And it caused a lot of stress and anxiety with everybody. But honestly, Zach and my other kids were doing great. The other older two children were home studying college remotely. So I had a packed house again. It was great. And Zach, he, he was keeping a very positive spirit. However, in December, our mall opened up again with limited capacity. It's the largest mall in Northern California, and it's a very popular place. And I remember Zach being excited. Finally, we can act like normal high school kids. And I want to spend time with my girlfriend and my friends and, and just live life like I envisioned I would be. Unfortunately, Zach came in contact with a drug dealer at the mall, a stranger, through a social media app called Snapchat. And Zach was with friends that day, but he and a buddy were approached, and for some reason, they purchased what they thought was a Percocet pill. And on December 26th, it was a chill day, and it was a day for all of us to just relax because there's a lot of busyness and, and activity getting ready for Christmas and celebrating Christmas. and. The 26th was just to relax. And Zach said, I haven't been with my friends for a couple of days because they're out with their families. It's like we were and kind of need to catch up and hang out. And I said, absolutely. He acted normal, came home that night. We have a tradition to watch Christmas movies together as a family, as many as possible during Christmas break. Before he came home, he texted, hey, can we do another Christmas movie tonight? And I said, absolutely, buddy. And he came home, looked normal, acted normal didn't appear drunk or high. He never had before, never caught him with any kind of marijuana type of product before. None of my kids had. So I never really had any warnings. For me as a parent of a teenager who's new to driving, my main concern is when they're not at the house and they're on the road. Maybe because they're being a little reckless or irresponsible driving, but mostly, especially with, with regard to Zach, He's never shown any issues with being irresponsible or, or showing poor judgment. It was very successful everywhere. My concern was the drunk driver he didn't see running a red light. So when Zach came home, I felt a sense of relief, like, okay, things are safe, not realizing there was imminent danger in his pocket from a prescription pill or what he thought was a prescription pill. So it was slightly after midnight on the 27th after we finished our movie, and it, it was a, like a typical night, and he said, I love you, Dad. Those were his last words to me. Mm. So the next day, I woke up. Eventually, the other kids woke up, and after a little after lunchtime, I asked, where's Zach? Usually, he comes down and announces his presence with playing the piano, and our dog, Jake, starts singing with him. But that hadn't happened yet. That day, our piano fell silent. So I went to check on him. 
And this is, John, this is a difficult part. I went to his room and checked on him, and his desk is about 15 feet away. And he appeared to be asleep at his desk with his head laying on his arm. And his hand was next to his mouse. And he's still in his pajamas. And typically, Zach and his buddies, especially during COVID, would play Minecraft together because they could socialize through cyberspace and see each other's avatars and play tag and all these kind of creative games, which is pretty cool. I just figured he'd done another long night at that or got got up and did early and did some more work and fell asleep. So I thought, good Lord, dude, it's, the time's wasting. Let's, let's go. Come on, let's get up. But when I walked up toward him, I got within two feet and I knew something was horribly wrong. I felt a void I'd never experienced before like this. And I could tell he wasn't breathing and he was blue on the fingernails. As you already mentioned, I'm a retired military vet and my training instantly kicked in. I immediately took Zach, started CPR. At the same time, I alerted my son, Sam, who I knew was close by. I said, Sam, call 911, something's wrong with Zach. So. I start CPR and I am in shock, but at the same time, I'm in auto mode of just doing what I know needed to be done. I heard Sam approach Zach's room when he climbed the stairs and he said, okay, dad, I got him on the phone. Let me help you out. At the time, Sam was a senior at UC Davis and was excelling as an ROTC cadet. And he was trained himself and he wants to help. But when you walked in the room, and he stopped next to me. He didn't know what to say or do. I looked up at him and the look of shock on Sam's face to see his little brother lifeless like that is something that caused him injury. Yeah. And the whole overall experience that day and beyond, John, really shows that when you see your children suffer and you can't do anything to stop it, it's, it adds a layer. Losing a child is near the top or the top of any parent's grief hierarchy, but when you see your other children suffer at the same time, it just adds to it. So I told Sam, hey, go downstairs, get the dogs, help the med techs get in, give them access, go get Allie. And Give mom a call. You're walking us through the most miserable nightmare of any parent's life. You found your son seated at his desk, head slumped over, asleep, and then you realize lifeless, not asleep, lifeless. Hmm. You flip him over, get him on his back, call 911, start CPR compressions. The way you're relaying the story is very composed. And a matter of fact, I'm just curious as, as a dad, Regardless of your training, what, what, what's your composure on the inside? What are you feeling and thinking? That's a good question, John. I'm lost. I am destroyed. I am broken. I've seen a lot of hard days in my military time. I lost one dozen friends. All of them were doing the job and lost their lives serving our country. And every one of those hurt. But when you see your own child in the privacy of their room, it's a whole nother level. I never experienced that before. And I just thought that this can't be happening. This is a nightmare. And I don't know what to do, but to just continue CPR until the med tech showed up. And then maybe they can do some magic that I can't. The, the med techs do show up. The EMTs arrive. And it's my understanding that they knew immediately that they arrived too late. Would you would you share what happens once they walk in? Keep in mind, I, I lost temporal awareness. So I, I think it was five to 10 minutes or so. They sh showed up and immediately take over. They pull out the defibrillator, put sensors on him. A police officer showed up and turned me around and asked questions. Typical questions. What happened is... Is he involved in drugs? Is Was he talking about suicide? Does he have any health history? After another five or 10 minutes, they 
decided it was too late. I refuse to accept that. I would not allow that to be the final decision. I grew up with the adage of failure is not an option. I absolutely refuse this. So we are going to save this boy. Help me save my boy. There was around seven or eight men in the room and they said, I'm sorry, I think it's too late. And I said, get the defibrillator. You give me an epi. I pointed directly at them and I'm I'm giving commands. I'm I'm being directive. I'm taking over. And they didn't, they just stood there. So I started CPR again and fought. When I realized that I couldn't get the med text to continue, I reached out to Zach and I begged him to come back. Mm. And I said, don't go, come back. And I, I think maybe five minutes of that, one of them gently pulled me away. And that was my darkest moments. That was absolutely my rock bottom in life. And as I said before, it, it just destroyed me. It, it, it made me a broken person. And after, I think, I don't know, a a few minutes of wailing on the ground next to my son. I let it pass. I stood up, I composed myself, and I looked around the room in the eyes of every man there, and they were crying their eyes out because they just witnessed a man lose his son, and we don't know why. There's no evidence. So I went downstairs. I know Allie and Sam heard all that, and I know they're traumatized with that. And what was interesting here, John, is a discovery I didn't expect. I like to try to find the silver linings where I can, and especially when you really need one. Once I became an adult and I became a commission officer and I became a husband and then I became a father, I always kind of was motivated and molded myself to be the provider, to be the you know pillar of strength the one with answers, the fix-it guy, the friend, the listener, the, the healer. But that day, I failed at that with my other two. When I came down, I told them we lost Zach, and I lost it with them. I, I couldn't be strong. And I was expecting them to wail and cry and get in the fetal position, but what happened was the opposite. I couldn't stand, and both of those amazing treasures were very strong and held me and we were hugged together the three of us and they were saying words of wisdom and compassion that were so incredibly uplifting they were saying dad we will survive this this sucks but you know you are a strong dad and you can get through this i witnessed them grow up in front of my eyes right there in those moments so interesting thing is the mystery that followed. When you count the county sheriff's office, the med techs, EMTs, firemen, and police, I think around 25 officials were in my home. And they were in Zach's room for about almost three hours and examined the rest of the house another hour or so. And of course, they examined Zach. And they asked the questions what you would expect. If there's a health history, was he thinking of suicide? Was there any drugs in his history? And I said, no, I have no drug history. We've talked a lot about every drug I know to talk about. And we've never experienced that with having anything like that. So there were no no flags, no, no red flags of any kind. So after thorough examination, they said, well, this is a mystery, Chris. We know the hiding spots a lot of high school kids like to have in their room and around the house. And we found nothing. There's no products, there are no paraphernalia, there's no empty baggies, there's no residue. There's nothing in this house. And so this is a real mystery. We're ruling out suicide, but Zach died of one of two things. Either natural causes that we didn't know about, or fentanyl. And that really threw confusion in my mind. Like, well, why would you say fentanyl? Isn't that some kind of pain drug of some sort? Keep in mind, this is 2020, and the messaging of counterfeit pills and illicit fentanyl was nowhere on any media platform. 
So they said, in our area, we're starting to see, in the last few months, mysterious deaths of young people like this. And we're just now getting toxicology reports in the last week or two that shows fentanyl is the cause. And we're hearing from the DEA and other law enforcement authorities that they're starting to smuggle pills that look real but are fake. Like so many of the grieving families, we call it the ultimate WTF experience. What's this fentanyl that you're trying to explain to me? I, I don't understand it. Never heard of this danger. Losing a child, as I mentioned, is the top of a grief hierarchy, but when it's from a danger you've never heard of before or understand, it really adds a layer of, of disorientation that's debilitating. Well, there's a lot going on. You've lost your son. You're mourning on the first floor with your other children. You don't know why. It's not suicide. It doesn't seem to be a drug overdose. It might be natural causes, and they bring up this word fentanyl, which our listeners might have heard of, but just barely. And mm -hmm. I think as you and I talk more and more throughout our conversation, they're going to recognize why it's so important that they have heard of it and what to do with it going forward. Eventually, you learn what the cause of death is. Tell us what, what ultimately killed your son, Zach. Fentanyl, illicit fentanyl. As I mentioned earlier, Zach and his friends were at the mall, and there are drug dealers that are also at these malls, which we, none of us really anticipated. They're there to shop for potential customers. And there's various ways social media platforms can be used and exploited to advertise. One example is if you're in a mall, you can zoom in on Snapchat's map feature, kind of like you could see Uber cars when you're using the Uber yes. app. You can see Snapchat users when you're zoomed into a mall area. And then you can put a an ad, in this case, a video of a tabletop with every paraphernalia and product known to man, from alcohol, vapes, puff bars, edibles, prescription pills, cocaine, meth, heroin, ecstasy, MDMA, all of that stuff. And the dealers are saying, here's my menu for today. Hit me up, I'm at the food court. And then he put a geotag on that video. And everyone in that mall sees a message. Sometimes the message a person may send will say, hey, Cease Candy Shop is giving out free double samples or Starbucks is doing. So these high school kids are going to look at that and say, oh, what's this? And then they're going to see that. The other way is they can literally solicit a Snapchat user by just hitting him up saying, hey, I see you're near the Macy's. I'm over here. If you haven't seen my story, here it is. I'm right here. I can help and you. Chris, that's what you've learned happened to Zach? That's exactly what happened. He was approached by a dealer through Snapchat. They met on the second floor of our mall, and they had an exchange that lasted about 30 seconds, and Zach and a friend bought a pill. They were told it was a Percocet pill. During the investigation process, and as we were piecing things together, what we learned was they were sold a fake pill, a pill that looks like a legitimate pill, but they're counterfeit. They're, they're not real. And he consumed what he thought was a pharmaceutical-grade Percocet pill for pain management. Instead, he took a fake pill that had a lethal amount of illicit fentanyl in it, and that's how he died. Describe to our listeners how little fentanyl is required to actually kill someone and also why would anybody make a pill that has fentanyl in it in the first place? It's good to just start with what is fentanyl. Fentanyl is one of many opioids used to treat for pain. In this case, fentanyl, that's legitimate fentanyl made in legitimate and certified labs in our country is for medicinal purposes for severe pain. It's a Schedule II opioid. It is the most powerful of all Schedule II opioids and the only one measured in micrograms. Others are measured in milligrams. It's typically given intravenously under close supervision at a hospital. Illicit fentanyl, which is what I'm talking about, are, are products made in, mostly in a cartel area, the Sinaloa State and the Next Generation cartels. They're receiving the ingredients, also known as precursors from China. And they're making millions of pills every day throughout their entire networks. And they're being smuggled into our country all kinds of different ways. One of the ways they're making illicit fentanyl 
And what they're doing with it is they're making it in a powder form and using it as an adulterant in heroin and cocaine and meth for those who are struggling with addiction. But this new category of danger is taking that powder and making a prescription-looking pill out of it and smuggling pills across the border. Now, these pills have the same shape, size, and color and markings of a legitimate pill. Now, fentanyl in in its normal rate, it's, it's a little as two milligrams, that could be lethal. That's enough to barely fit on top of a tip of a pencil. Two grains of sand or salt or sugar is enough fentanyl to be lethal. Those sugar packets, the sugar packet has one gram of sugar in it. You see them in coffee stores, shops, restaurants. Well, according to the National Institute of Health, two of these sugar packets could be lethal if, if consumed all at once and it was all cocaine. Two packets could kill one person if it was cocaine. Two packets of fentanyl can make 1,000 lethal doses. It's far more potent than cocaine or heroin or meth. It's, it's the most powerful of all opioids. And so when cartels are making prescription-looking pills in their clandestine labs, there's no regulation. There's no content uniformity. They're very risky. According to the DEA, over 99% of prescription pills sold online through social media or on the streets are counterfeit. They're fake. They're, they're not pills laced with fentanyl. These are just fake pills made of fentanyl. And now over 60% have the potential to be lethal. So it's an extremely dangerous game we're playing and the landscape is different. And because they're disguised as legitimate prescription pills, it's, it's created a new category of victim of someone who has no drug history, someone who isn't struggling with marijuana use, cocaine use, or any other kind of drug. They're just trying to manage anxiety or manage pain or try to study for a test that they're coming up with. I would never condone self-medication or experimentation, but when you're a young adult learning life's new batteries, you certainly don't deserve to die for making a, a, a life mistake like that. As you're learning about this in real time, and, and for us, it's not academic, it's not textbook, it's not national news, it's your family. This child had your last name. He was your third born and your baby. What do you do with that kind of anger and sadness and resentment and grief? First, John, thank you for that question. I really think it's healthy for me to address it. At first, it, it was mostly confusion and bewilderment and just why is this happening? Why would a maker, a drug maker from Mexico or anywhere on this planet make something that's deceiving, you know, that's marketed as a legitimate harmless prescription bill when it is lethal and their customers are dying. I don't understand it. So I was confused. I wanted to understand. I wanted to learn answers. Naturally, I was extremely angry. I was hurt. I've already mentioned destroyed. I was broken and, and needed to find how do I heal out of this? As you may have heard many times before, tragedy will strike all of us at some point, just as certain as the sun will set in the West. And we need to try to figure how to learn to cope with it. And unfortunately, tragedy doesn't come across evenly. Some people have worse tragedies than others. Oftentimes, tragedy is unexpected. It happens when you don't know it's coming. And when the world, especially big tragedies like this, when your world crashes around you and, and you're standing in rubble around you, you can choose. You can choose to pick up those pieces and try to make something good out of it to help others so they can learn. So how I like to think of it is we can choose to use our pain to be a fortress to hide from the world or a fuel to change it. And that's what I want to do. You, my friend, have been doing this work now, relatively speaking, for a while, and yet the healing is just still beginning. If I was your coach and you were asking me, what should I do with the story? I would probably have said, I would 
I would cry over it for about 10 years. And then we should talk more like, like take some time and wrestle and fight and struggle. Mm-hmm. And yet you're already trying to fuel this to, to change not only your suffering, but also to redeem the future suffering of others. So they don't have to go through it. And I, I'm like mm-hmm. amazed by that. You're already making a difference in the marketplace when you are invited either onto shows whether it's podcasts or national television shows or big papers or in front of schools what's your message to to the people who bring you in when you speak to school-aged kids what do you say to them i find when i do advocate it's always hard to recount the story just like today i don't think that'll ever go away yeah because it, it cuts very close to the bone it's a very personal thing But what I get after talking, especially to middle school and high school and college age kids, young adults who are just learning life as a new adult and trying to discover their identity, they come up and talk. There's usually a line afterwards and the compassion is sincere and the appreciation of what they've learned is something they take to the heart. And that fills my bucket back up. I really feel that. Going back to actually a topic you had just mentioned is why. When we, Laura, Zach's mom and I were first interviewed on our local TV channel, KCRA, uh, they had a 30-minute program and it was very difficult to do the interview. And then we watched it on TV. I thought it was a very well-produced piece. And they did a one-year anniversary follow-up program for 30 minutes. Another awesome product. But after the first one was aired, about six weeks later, I had three families approach me. I didn't know them. And they said, Chris, you don't know us. We're really sorry what happened. This is a tragedy that should never have happened. It's an unspeakable loss. But I need you to know something. We were shocked what we learned, that there's this new danger called a fake bill. And we didn't know that social media was like a proverbial grocery store that is being used to bring accessibility of these dangerous products. And they're targeting young people who are always on these social media platforms. So I sat my high school kid down next to me and forced them to watch that TV show. And like your son, they're a straight A student. I have had no issues with them. And these three families admitted their child had just purchased a pill that day the night before also on snapchat and they had them tested and guess what they had lethal amount of fentanyl in them and those families felt overwhelmed that we have to reach out to you and and as hard as it was to share your story the fact that you did that saved my child's life and i owe you that and so that that's a really powerful influencer to get this story out there. We wanted to put a face to this danger and we wanted to ring the alarm. What we tell the kids, guys, you did not start this crisis, but I truly believe you have the most influential power to stop it because you're the most connected of any previous generation. Like so many, like Zach, he has more than demonstrated the potential to bring new innovation and progress in this world. And all you need to do is to learn what's really going on, know and understand there's deception behind this danger and share this information with your friends, your cousins, your family, and just let people know there's a proverbial minefield now. There's no slippery slope. We don't live in a world anymore where you may struggle with addiction for months or years. It's literally one time you can tiptoe down that slippery slope and even half a pill could be enough to kill three or four grown adults. So it is a minefield. It's something we need to share. I I do go into more of the motivational pieces about life choices, how we are defined by the choices we make, and to ask them to help turn our anguish into action. And they usually do. I've heard you say in another interview that if a plane happened to crash in the United States, it would be the lead story, not only the day it happened, but for weeks afterwards. And that's true. And what you've also said in that same interview is, and every single day, more than 200 young people die of fentanyl overdoses. And for the most part, 
There's no name to it. It's not in our neighborhood, we don't think. It certainly will never affect our family. And so you're trying to bring attention to something that is already everywhere, but few of us are actually aware of it. I agree. In our advocacy work, uh, I've done a lot of volunteering with several nonprofits, and I've met some incredible grieving families who are in the same club that none of us want to be in. But I really gained so much from the members, their members that have shown me strength and resilience and resurgence, and I'm thankful for that. But in our advocacy, our biggest challenge can be summed up in one word. It's stigma. Because when someone who doesn't have a direct connection to this or a history with this, when they hear the word overdose or fentanyl or opioid drugs, they may categorize that and what they do know. And, oh, that's that war on drugs or that's that drug problem. Just say no thing. That won't happen to me or my family and not my kid. And when that is categorized that way, people associate what they may think of, and that could be a drug addict who's in an alley who may have a needle in his arm. And when they have addiction connected to our story, victim shaming creeps in. And when that happens, our message is lost. Fentanyl changes everything is the biggest thing here, and we have to break through the stigma we have to address the fact that especially COVID adding to, you know, life stress, especially for our youth with anxiety and depression and wondering how life is supposed to work out. We need to break through those barriers and say, here's what's really going on. You mentioned a statistic. CDC estimates over 73,000 people died from synthetic opioids, mostly fentanyl in 2022. And when you do the math, Divide it into 365, that's about 200 people every day are dying from fentanyl. That's a fatality every seven minutes. The worst war our country has ever seen on soil here was the Civil War, where we were losing 138 people every day. Our worst statistic is World War II of 178 people every day. But in 12 months, these last 12 months, it's about 200 people every day, like an airplane crash. So we clearly need to make this a priority in our nation across all boards. One other thing I need to talk about is terminology. We've been saying different words, and I think terminology is important to help better describe what's happened. This is a different landscape. As I mentioned before, it's not a slippery slope. It's more of a minefield. And to better describe this, to help people connect our messages and understand what's going on, I think words matter. So there are three that come to play. One is legitimate fentanyl and illicit fentanyl. Legitimate's made in a certified lab for medicinal use and has helped con considerable number of people manage their severe pain, usually from surgery or suffering from terminal cancer. Illicit fentanyl is made illegally by actors mostly in, in Mexico. And they're doing it for the purpose of getting people addicted and to profit from it. And it's a very profitable machine that they're making. The other terminology is the difference between laced and fake. Heroin, meth, and cocaine can be laced with fentanyl, implying that there's heroin and the fentanyl was added to it as an adulterant. There is, I haven't yet seen or heard of a, a legitimate or legit prescription pill laced with fentanyl. So I haven't really found a, a way or, or a need to say pills laced with fentanyl, because if you say that, it infers it's a legitimate pill that later somehow was laced with fentanyl. Maybe a pill a somewhat 20-year-old stole from mom or dad's medicine cabinet and somehow sprinkled fentanyl in it. These are fake pills that only have fentanyl in it, and they're deceptive, and, and they made to look like they're legit, but they're fake. And then the third one, and this is the more important one, is the term overdose versus poisoning. And in a traditional sense, if someone is addicted to heroin and taking heroin, and they take it for a long time and struggle with the shackles of addiction, and then eventually their body breaks down and they lose their life from an overdose in the traditional sense, and the toxicology said they just had too much heroin in their system, that's an overdose. But when someone thinks they're taking a Percocet pill, 
and the toxicology showed no Percocet pill and it's fentanyl. I think the manner of death is best described as a poisoning. So in our son's case, he died from illicit fentanyl poisoning because he was thinking this and not that. It kind of goes back to the Chicago extra strength Tylenol crisis in 1982, where a number of people died thinking they were taking extra strength Tylenol when they were consuming potassium cyanide. We wouldn't say they overdosed on Tylenol because there was no Tylenol in their system. They were poisoned by taking cyanide. What became of the individual who sold your son that, that fake Percocet? He was arrested. It's an interesting thing. Once we got into saxophone, his girlfriend, uh, they had a sweet relationship. It was beautiful. They shared the same code to their phone. And once we got into Zach's phone, we immediately alerted authorities. A There is a narcotics task force, multi-agency task force, and this uh, undercover agent came to the door. I didn't expect him to be wearing undercover outfit because he showed up wearing a Budweiser truck driver pinstripe shirt and jeans and Converse with a big beard that's way out here did not look like some kind of undercover agent, but he got into Zach's phone and it took him 90 seconds to find the dealer on Snapchat. And he, the dealer had just texted Zach, not realizing Zach had died. And the investigators said, Hey, we have a live fish. So they conducted a sting operation and which eventually led to his arrest. And on September 1st of this last year, 2022, he accepted the charges and is now serving a 17-year sentence. We're very fortunate to have that because it's a really tough thing to grapple with, John, because it doesn't bring our boy back. And I don't really feel like there's justice. I can never feel that, but I do believe there's a measure of accountability that has happened here. And unfortunately, so many grieving families that are in the same categories as ours are never going to get that. And I really feel bad for, for that. That's not right. So my friend, we, we are moving toward the conclusion of our time together, but sure. to the moms and the dads and the aunts and the uncles and the grandparents and the friends and the neighbors who love a young person are moved by your story, are brokenhearted for your loss, but are still unsure of, well, what do I do with this? You know, fentanyl, I don't think it's in my backyard. My kid's not making that decision. What what do I really do with this? So for those who don't yet know what it means for them, dress it up for us. Explain to us what we should do with this message to make sure that we live forward on behalf of Zachary. Thank you for that. This message, especially for parents and caregivers out there, teachers, coaches, counselors, this is the time to really get smart on a, a growing crisis, and it's only worsening because there are new synthetics that are on the horizon that are starting to take place that are even more powerful than illicit fentanyl. Uh, if you are thinking, not my child, I urge you to think again. Because mm. Zach's story is one of many, and not to distance ourselves from those who do struggle with addictions, with cocaine or heroin or other products, Many of those people are thinking they're taking a safe dose of some product, not knowing it's there's fentanyl in there and it's too much fentanyl and they're dying from it. So this new category victim of a person unwittingly consuming fentanyl and it ends their life immediately is something that is different. We didn't have that when we were in high school, but our children do. So I would urge caregivers and parents and family members, get smart. There are many resources that are available. I'm happy to share with you, John, afterwards to, to better understand, to learn. And then do the best you can to have that sit-down conversation with your kid. If you need, I'll come to your house and have that with you and sit next to you. We need to start having these conversations. It's so important. It's critical. I do believe, and I've done this with all my children on every major tricky topic before I ever learned about a fake bill. And I found a lot of success with that. And I came from an approach of concern and like, hey, I've learned about this. Did you know about that? What do you think about this? Especially with illicit fentanyl, are you worried about it? 
are you seeing about it? Are, are you worried that your friends may get caught up on this? Did you know 60% have the potential to be lethal? That's like playing Russian roulette with a bullet in every chamber. We like to call it Russian pillette. And this is crazy scary. You know, what can I do to help you? And I think if you take it from an approach that doesn't say a directive approach, like do this and don't do that, but hey, what are your thoughts and feelings on this? I think you get a more of above board response from them. And I also highly encourage you uh, parents to talk to the parents of your children's friends, get them in the loop so that this conversation comes up and that they're just aware that there is a minefield out there and keep saving their lives. Avoiding it isn't going to work. Marie Folio says that, well, avoidance doesn't extinguish our fears. Taking action does. Mm. Every morning you take action by putting a pen on your left chest. Every video I've ever seen of you, every time I've seen a picture snapped of you, you got this good looking kid covering up your heart. Who is he? And when you see that in the mirror and you see that face staring back at you, what, what do you think? I miss him. I fiercely miss him. But he has gifted me and the world on so many things on how to live honestly, how to live with integrity, how to live being the best version of yourself, you know, to, to show that you can give compassion and help others. This is bigger than me. This is uh, something that, that can benefit all of us. We wrap up every one of our Live Inspired podcasts with seven questions. Yes, sir. There's seven questions that tether all of our beautiful life-giving guests together, including you, my friends. So we're going to, we're going to move into the live inspired seven right now with Zach Penn to your left chest. Question number one, what's been the most impactful book you've ever read? Oh boy, there's a lot. Early in my adulthood, Stu Weber's uh, Servant Warrior is, is a great book as far as healing, coping, uh, surviving tragedy. I, I read Sheryl Sandberg's book called Option B. It's a heartwarming story. And I, I learned an expression in that book that when someone suffers an unexpected loss like this, it equates to someone who has broken ribs. They may look normal on the outside, but they're broken on the inside. It takes a long time to heal and it hurts to breathe. I gained a lot of strength from that. Uh, the five people you meet when you go to heaven. But I've mentioned this book already is unbroken. And hearing the 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 stories that Louis Zamperini shared of how to overcome adversity despite being the darkest moments, uh, I really found a lot of strength in that book. And I I knew that I could never choose to stay in victim mode because. This young man has survived unspeakable tragedies. And if you haven't read that book, I highly recommend it. The, one of the parts that really stuck out to me was when they were being strafed uh, while in a raft in the Pacific Ocean multiple times. And they jumped in the water, punching the sharks, trying to bite him while bullets are running in the water. And then after the plane left, this raft has nothing but bullet holes and they're Raft is surrounded by all these sharks and they're feverishly trying to pump air and repair with patches and all the bullet holes and they still survived. It's incredible. Um, so I, I find a lot of strength. I, I would I would say unbroken. So it's odd you bring that up, but that's how God works. We uh, I, I just finished reading Unbroken again last night, mm. only the second time through. It's a pretty it's a pretty robust book. It's a few pages in length. Mm. And as powerful as the movie is, and the movie is awesome, it's extremely yeah. well done. What the movie misses is the power of forgiveness and grace and acceptance mm -hmm. that Louis unpacks far more fully in the book. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, surviving is part of it, but then healing. And this is where you are right now. Healing <laughs> is the next right step. And it's a, it's a beautiful book. Isn't that the part of healing is forgiveness, right? Yeah. Well, how can you heal without it? But how can you forgive the unforgivable things? What's one positive characteristic that you possessed as a little boy that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Wow, that's a good question. One thing I really miss as a little boy is a sense of adventure and openness to new ideas as far as like meeting people and exploring and 
going on adventures to just soak up the the world, you know, and in in an innocent way. I still feel like I do that now, but not at the capacity as I did as a boy. And and that's something I struggle. It's easy to judge. It's easy to form opinions. And I, I constantly remind myself, hey, you need to not do that. If your home caught fire and all living things are out and you have an opportunity of running back inside and grabbing one item that really matters to you, what's the one thing you would grab, Chris? I thought long and hard about what I would take. And um, this is what I would take. This is a letter Zach wrote to himself. And this, I think, helps culminate what he is. And the, the, like I said earlier, he is an amazing soul. And what happens is at Whitney High School, they write a letter to their senior self just before graduation when they start their freshman year. After Zach died, we learned from Zach's counselor about this. We didn't know that they did that. And so Zach's mom, Bora, and our son, Sam, went to the school to get it. And in this letter um, is a really cool note. He left himself $20, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) And it's called the freshman letter. And it talks about all the cool things he likes and his friends, has happy thoughts, saddest thoughts, best friends' hopes. But at the very end, I think it's really profound. Uh, It's his closing, and we put these on his tombstone. And I'd like to share it. In closing, always remember our friends, family, dogs, and potential we have in life. Good luck on whatever project you are working on right now. Don't forget to smile. Have the best day of your life. Zach. So this is what I would grab because it's a very tangible thing to hold on to as a reminder of constantly moving forward. We're constantly on approach in life and to help others to, to find the joys of life and to live life its fullest while we can. Oh man, that's such a blessing to have that letter. Your son's words, his advice, his vision and dreams that his dad gets to hold. And and if the house is burning, run in and save and come back out and be reminded, be happy, be happy today. This is a gift. If if you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day, or maybe for you, if you could sit back into, I think you flew the F-15E for a while. If you could sit in an F-15, I think that's, that's a two passenger plane, isn't it? Yeah, it's what we call the family model. Here's it's a family a, model. So you, it has both seats, not just one. With anybody living or deceased, who would you like to be up there flying with? My dad. My dad was my first co-pilot. He was, I guess, my captain. <laughs> I was his co-pilot. He taught me how to fly. He gave me some sound advice that really helped me through pilot training, the rigors of pilot training and beyond and we had some amazing stories to share what's the best advice your father your mother your son or anybody else ever gave you so the best advice you've ever received is both my parents but i i lived with my mom and i heard that you are the sum total of all the obstacles you learn to overcome and when you come up to an obstacle you have to overcome it figure how to get around it get over it get through it And don't forget to look back and learn from it. Whether you're successful or not, you can benefit from it. The failures help teach oftentimes more when you learn from your failures. I like to call it failing forward. How can we be better? What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Family is God's gift to you as you are to them. Desmond Tutu said that. And I I really believe that then, but I, I would just emphasize that more than I possibly could, because life is fleeting, and it is precious. And when it's time for someone to no longer be in your life, it is permanent and enjoy everything you can, while you can. Chris Edier, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? Life is like a daily tug of war of accepting mediocrity or being the best version of yourself. It's easy to just be lazy. It's easy to just take a day off. And, and, and there are times that are appropriate to do that. But it's 
to me, a constant chore to want to always improve who you are and be the better version of yourself. Chris, I want to thank you for choosing to become a better version of yourself. I want to thank you for tugging the rope in the direction of that and for pulling not only Zach's legacy along for the ride, but also keeping a whole lot of other young people safe from experiencing that kind of journey themselves. Thank you, John. I'm humbled to be here. Thank you so much. My friends, that is the story of Chris Didier. My name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. It is sacred. It is fragile. Don't miss it and live inspired. Well, my friends, there was so much about this interview that moved me. Hearing hearing a father share his grief, hearing him share his love, hearing him share his passion to keep our other kids alive and away from fentanyl, hearing some of the statistics around how unbelievably dangerous this drug is. And one of the quotes that I wrote down, and if you didn't have a chance to grab your favorite Live Inspired journal and jot it down, let me give it to you one more time so you can write it down now. It's a quote that Chris shared from Marie Forleo, and it goes like this. Avoidance does not extinguish our fears. Taking action does. With illicit fentanyl being the leading cause of death for Americans ages 18 through 45, it is time to start the conversation right now with our kids, with the people in our communities that we love. If you need resources, I'll have links to them in our show notes. So we're going to drive you to whatever will support you best to make sure you keep your kids, your family, your community safe from this monster drug. If you are a parent, a caregiver, or a role model to young ones, you'll love my conversation with one of my other friends. Her name is Dr. Meg Meeker. She's a phenomenal author, physician, human being, and friend. As a pediatrician, an author, parent, wife, grandmother now, and business owner, Meg's goal is to diffuse fear-based parenting. Don't miss out as she shares insights on raising happy, confident children in today's increasingly complicated world. You can check out Meg's conversation with us on the Live Inspire channel, one of my earliest ones, way back at episode 14. If you struggle finding it there, let your fingers do the work, man. Join me right now online at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. Well, my friends, that brings us to the conclusion of this episode. And if you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed bringing this one to you, do me a favor. Tell those that you work out with or worship with or work next to that you love the Live Inspired podcast channel. And so would they. You can rate the show. You can subscribe to the show. You can follow us on social media. A lot of ways to stay in touch. But make sure that these are shown back up in your life on Mondays and Thursdays by subscribing to the show. It's one of, one of the ways that we're able to bring this information into your life and to keep you inspired going forward. Because what we know is the headwind is real, the challenges are fierce, but the foundation is firm. Your life is worthy and the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary and today is your day, my friends. What a gift live inspired. At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at Keely.com.